Hello and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream Q&A podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Happy Friday, everyone. Before we begin today's live stream, we're off next Saturday and our final episode of the 2021 season will be on Wednesday, December 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Pacific, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. I can't announce who the guests will be just yet. Yes, guests, I said, as in plural. Um, there's going to be many guests, but it's our year-end extravaganza, so you won't want to miss it. Mark it down. That's Wednesday, December 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. But today, we've got a great guest. Uh, he is a top literary manager and producer at Anonymous Content. That's the production company and management firm behind such films as The Revenant, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Laundromat, and many more, and TV series such as True Detective, The Nick, Mr. Robot. Um, he started his career working as a PA on films and TV series in New Orleans uh, while competing his studies at Tulane University. Uh, after graduation, he moved to Los Angeles and has worked at Madhouse Films, Metropolitan Talent Agency, and in the story department at New Regency. His clients include a quiet place writing duo, Beck and Woods, who've been on the show before, and they're not only uber-talented writers, they're just super nice guys. As is Ryan, and as a producer, he's developing Stephen King's book *The Boogeyman* with Beckin Woods for Fox, and John Scalzi's sci-fi novel *The Old* or *Old Man's War*, I should say, for Netflix. I could keep going, but let's just get into the Q and A. He's the one, the only Ryan Cunningham. Welcome to the live stream, the podcast, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Um, so no, it's great to have you. Um, I, you have had a long career in starting in physical production, working in story development, uh, working you know for a talent agency and then ultimately a management company and now you're a manager producer so you've bundled up all of those skills that you've you've learned through the years uh, to become you know a literary manager and producer. So I've given sort of a abbreviated, very brushed over glossed over uh, version of your background. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you actually sort of got your start in the industry, um, how you landed your first gigs, and and what made you want to work in the industry? Yeah, no, uh, thanks for that. Um, you know, I think, look, like a lot of people, I mean, growing up, I really had a love and appreciation for, I think everybody says movies and TV right now. Like, I loved TV growing up, but it wasn't, you know, the kind of golden age of TV with Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad and that kind of cinematic TV like we have now, but you know everything from growing up watching Friends or Cheers and all the stuff my parents are watching. So I love that. I love movies. And as a kid, that you know during the summertime in middle school, and uh, you know my parents dropped me off at the movie theater with my friends, and we would see two or three movies a day and you know play video games in the arcade in between. And you know after that, it kind of segued into again like what a lot of kids do, I think, which is you know, experimenting with stuff, playing around for class projects with a home video camera and just really kind of that love of storytelling, which was always something that I was attracted to. But again, like a lot of people in the business never really thought of it much as a career path growing up in, in uh, New England. Um, I went to college, like you said, at Tulane down in New Orleans, actually planning to be an architect when I first went down there. Um, yeah, after about a year of that, I discovered very quickly that I love architecture and design, but the actual career path of that was not really what I thought it was going to be and not kind of uh, leaning into what I really love doing, which is funny. And I can talk later, but there's sort of a nice analogy there between what I would say a writer does versus what a manager or producer does, which is why I have so much respect for, for architects and for writers for that matter. But I never feel like I can do that myself. Um, so, you know, after that, while I was going to school, because I switched out of architecture, I, um, I was on scholarship and I needed a little bit of extra money to cover what, wasn't covered anymore since I switched out of the program. And honestly, just by luck of circumstance, I was, you know, living there at the time when the tax incentives kicked in to shoot movies in mm. Louisiana and New Orleans was the hub. So, you know, I worked very briefly as location PA on Ray, the Jamie Foxx movie when he was shooting there. Um, and then after that, um, I mean, I didn't, you know, burn down the set or anything. So I had an offer to be a location PA at another movie. And then it, it's like anything. I mean, as long as you do a pretty good job, suddenly you're getting phone calls saying from the film board or a movie coming in saying, Hey, do you want to be a set PA on this lifetime movie of the week? Or do you want to be a camera PA on this, um, you know, independent film? So my last two years of college, I actually got to work in quite a few productions in various departments, really get a sense of physical production and what I really loved about it and what I maybe didn't love as much about it. Um, which in turn, you know, made me, apply to a lot of internships in LA between my junior and senior year because I wanted to 
get a sense of development and kind of what goes on both the business and kind of the, the creative side that wasn't on set. Um, and again, this is back kind of even before you could even email to get those things. So I was sending out a lot of letters. I applied to like 50 internships. I was lucky and I got offered one at the Regency. So went back home, bought a used car, drove cross country, crashed on the couch all summer, interned a couple days a week there while I was, you know, working as a PA occasionally, just from some of the contacts I had from Louisiana who also were working in LA. Um, and, you know, I saw story development and that's really what excited me about the business. It was the idea that you could be a producer or a studio executive and find a great book and then option that and then find a writer and develop it and, you know, put the movie together. But in the kind of creative way that I didn't see candidly as much on set unless you were the director or the cinematographer or maybe the production designer. And again, I knew that wasn't anything I was nearly skillful enough to do, but I was good at talking story and putting pieces together and, you know, kind of creating coalitions of people to hopefully launch projects. So went back, finished up school and worked for, you know, that year and that summer too, until I had enough money to move out to LA. As you mentioned, I mean, I, I interned a couple more places briefly and then I got a job at Metropolitan, um, first in the talent department as an assistant to a talent agent, and then very quickly moved into literary. So that's more where I knew I wanted to be. Um, I was there for a couple of years. I left as a uh, coordinator, which is kind of like a, a little bit of a pseudo junior agent. It was more kind of organizing stuff within the department while still assisting and starting to come onto teams with clients. And that's where I found that I actually really liked aspects of representation. I mean, a lot of people like myself that you started an agency so that you can see the way the business works and make contacts, but it's really just a jumping off point to getting another job in development or somewhere like that. And that was still what I figured I was going to do. I wanted to be a development executive so I could, again, talk story, give notes and have a, a more creative job. Whereas I didn't really look at, you know, agents and the agency side as being particularly creative. It was more hunt and kill for jobs and sign every client you could and try to you know, get them working to make money. But I really did like the human connection of it. And the thing I really enjoyed actually was when I was able to get feedback on those clients' scripts mm -hmm. and talk to them about it. Um, again, still not realizing that management could be a path for that. Because, um, you know, I only dealt with a few of those clients' managers and every manager does it differently. But at least the ones I was dealing with didn't seem like they were doing something particularly different than what I was more on the agency side. Um, but just by chance, as I was starting to look around at those, you know, junior development exec jobs, uh, a friend of a friend was leaving Madhouse, the company I ended up joining. Uh, he was going up to an animation studio, and I interviewed at the company, you know, with the partners. Uh, one in particular was really great, and she took me under her wing and said, "I want you on my desk for a year. I'll train you, and you know, you'll get promoted after that." And in my mind, because it was this upstart company, I was like, oh, well, I can become the in-house development executive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through working with with Robin and with Adam and you know, seeing the process of how, you know, as a manager, depending on how you do it, you can be essentially what I would always say is I'm kind of like a personal development executive for all my clients, which doesn't in any way mean that I produce all their content. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. I try to only produce a very small amount so I can hopefully do it the right way, but I get to scratch the same itch of like giving notes, talking story, helping them figure out their ideas, both, you know, on the project level and also, you know, with their career and, and all the other parts of it. Um, so I was at Madhouse for about 12 years or so. Um, the thing that got me fully promoted was me and the other assistant and, um, you know, Adam and Robin developed the screenplay for the movie Prisoners, which mm -hmm. um, became a real calling card for us as a young company. Um, and the movie got made and again, got me and Chris promoted and, it was just kind of off to the races after that and, you know, developing a client list of people that I really believed in, um, you know, Beck and Woods, you mentioned were um, not some of my first clients, but they're fairly early on in my career. I think it was only in maybe my second year as a manager, you know, and it's the exciting part. It's finding just unique voices and people with perspectives and points of view that you feel like, wow, I can really help this person. I can really give them a platform for what they want to do. And with those guys, it was funny because it was, you know, a, an executive friend sent me a short film they had done. Uh, and I loved it. I just thought it was great. I had a meeting with them, hadn't even read any of their material. And I was just so impressed by them in the room. I was like, great, let's work together. And we did. I was like, okay, send me your scripts. And then I kind of grit my teeth and hoped to God that their writing was good too. And it turned out it, it really was. And we, um, you know, developed a, a spec screenplay of theirs, the first one I got to develop with them, which we actually sold to Lionsgate and, um, you know, got made and they directed uh, this mm -hmm. movie called Nightlight, which was, uh, you know, before Quiet Place and some other things they did too. But it was, you know, with them or with 
Cameron Gizikowski on Prisoners. It was just a really great, I think, proof of concept of what the principles of Madhouse had always preached, which was put the work in, develop great material, let that and the creative speak for themselves. It's not the like, let's hustle and trick people into buying stuff. And mm-hmm. not that all agents do that, but you know, there's more of that kind of seller mentality. Whereas for us, it was develop great stuff, build it, and they will come. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, about three years ago in Madhouse, after a really good run, uh, you know, the company dissolved, uh, me and, and uh, another colleague went over to anonymous content and we've been for the last few years. And it's been a great experience. It was, you know, for me, the right place at the right time to expand more into the director side and, you know, have a bigger platform for my clients and more resources and, you know, all these things that I had nothing to do with, but the company, as you mentioned, has amazing credits and amazing people there who are really benefited from uh, getting to join up with a, a really great group of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, for those that are in the live stream, if you have questions for Ryan, just feel free to drop them. We'll get to them as soon as we can. But I did have some questions that I think a lot of, of emerging writers, uh, filmmakers out there would probably have. Uh, the first being... Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you look at when you're looking for new clients? Where do you search? Uh, is it only through referrals? Do you happen to troll the blacklist, either you know the site, or the uh, annual list, or the site? You know when they send out those emails, uh, and then what other than a logline and and what stands out in in queries that you happen to that land in your e- inbox? Yeah, um, well, I mean, at my old company, Madhouse, like we again, because we were a smaller company, a lot of our philosophy was like, you know, turn over every mm-hmm. stone and, and find anybody you can. Anonymous has a bigger company. I mean, unfortunately, I can't really guess, accept anything that's not referral based. Mm-hmm. But I do have, you know, again, I've been doing this for like 15 years now. So I've got a really good network of producers and executives and agents and even manager friends, um, you know, who will refer people to me, um, you know, and a lot of other places too. So it's great. I get a really good flow of I think a lot of really, really solid writers, some even some really great ones too. And, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, I, I haven't really signed a whole lot of people in the last year or two, just because I've, you know, got my list of people who I've worked with for a long time. And, you know, thankfully, I've, a lot of them have risen in their careers and they're very busy. So, you know, for me, it's like, I, I would keep a little bit, bit of bandwidth open for somebody who's like undeniably great that I really see where I can add value to their life and that, you know, I, I don't have anybody else on my list quite like them because I also as a manager, I really don't like having too many people that do the same thing. I don't think it's it's fair to them and I can't really sell them effectively if I do that. But um, no, it, it comes from everywhere. And frequently, um, maybe not frequently, but many times in the past, I've signed people who were, you know, other clients who referred friends of theirs who they knew from writers groups or they had worked with. Um, you know, it all goes back to, you know, really that human element of knowing that somebody is vouching for that person mm-hmm. tends to push the material up higher in my weekend read pile, which, you know, like a lot of us tends to be, um, you know, pretty heavy. Uh, and, you know, beyond that, it's like sometimes a log line, you know, kind of excites me or somebody's credits of what they've done certainly validates them. But for me, I've always got to read it or see it. it it's got to be there on the page and the voice. Um, you know, going back to, again, like, you know, back in Woods or David Burke or Kazakowski, who I used to work with at Madhouse, like almost all the writers I work with, I would say, um, all the clients really, I need to be able to see that they have something not only unique to say with the kinds of stories that they're telling, that unique perspective on the world or point of view that isn't just retread on other mm. stuff that's out there. But even the way that they put, you know, in their writing or their filmmaking have something really unique about how they um, how they see the world. Like um, I was talking to a friend actually not too long ago that one of the things I, I kind of realized weirdly that I love about my job is that in reading and in seeing my clients or anybody's work, it, it's almost like I get a chance to climb inside of their brain and understand how they see the world uh, differently than I do or than all of us do. Because we're all kind of like living inside our own very subjective point of view in the world. And, and it's really exciting when on the page I can read a script and feel like I'm so immersed in how they see things that I understand that, that point of view. And I think that's where you hear a lot of reps and others say, like, well, I need a unique voice. I need to be able to see it there. And I think a lot of writers get confused about what that means. They're like, oh, does that mean I need to you know, just use different adjectives in my writing? Or do I have to, like, format it all funky and stuff? And it's, no, it's not about that. It's about imparting your point of view in the world. And I feel like if I find somebody like that, like, I can help somebody learn – you know, how to do better structure, better character arcs. Like I can work with stuff and kind of mold that, but I can't, I 
can't tell somebody how to be funnier or how to be more unique or creative with what they do. That really inherently comes from them. And for me, it's all about seeing material itself to know. Mm -hmm. And and talking about referrals, uh, can you, for you, what constitutes a referral? Is it only people that you have a direct relationship with? Or is it anybody who, for example, if a screenwriting professor at AFI said, hey, I've got a great you know, former student who has a great script, but you don't have any previous relationship with this teacher or an independent producer who you may have heard of, or they have a few credits that seem legitimate. Uh, maybe not, they're not an A-list Bruckheimer producer. Is that, would that constitute in your mind a referral that someone's, you're willing to take a look at, or is only people you have like a direct relationship and connection with? Yeah, totally. As long as somebody is like legitimately within the entertainment business. Um, yeah, like you said, an AFI professor, I mean, that's very legitimate. Producers who, you know, are really in the system, mm-hmm. that's one thing too. Occasionally I've gotten, you know, emails or phone calls from like somebody saying they're an entertainment attorney, but it's obviously somebody's like friend who does corporate law who's just saying that. It's like, okay, that can't really do that. Right. Or I'll get emails that say, oh, I'm this producer and I want to refer this person and it's kind of clear it's actually the writer pretending to be a producer uh, pretending to do that. Right. So, you know, that kind of stuff, again, just like legally, we can't really accept that. But mm-hmm. now that somebody, you know, especially that I know, that's easy. I'm always going to say yes to that. Because, right. You know, I, I trust the people I know. But if they're legitimately within the business in some way, then 100%. And I love, you know, reading to people that way. Mm-hmm. What if somebody uh, had a script that maybe didn't win, you know, nickel? but maybe was, and I know all the finalists will get approached by tons of different reps, but let's say they have their hearts set on Ryan Cunningham, anonymous content. They were a semi-finalist or finalist or whatever. Again, just a cold mm-hmm. query, not referral, not, is that something that would, I'm just kind of throwing things out there. Cause I'm sure there's lots of scenarios out there where writers are like, I would love to be rep by Ryan and anonymous. I don't know how to get to him. Um, <laughs> what, what are things that, what, yeah, no, well, watch out what you wish for. They, they might not after they do. Um, but I would say, you know, like, I, especially, again, earlier in my career, like, I would, you know, comb through the Nichols and all mm-hmm. the others. And frequently there are things that aren't even the finalists that are really strong. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's so many things that go into those. That, and, again, everything is subjective. So there's plenty of amazing writers out there who have never won or even been a finalist in a competition, um, you know, and vice versa, too. Um, I would say, though, I mean, and going back to what you referenced about, like the blacklist and some other things, you know, it's like all of us in the in the industry, there's so many writers and scripts out there. Like we need these filtration mechanisms to help figure out where we're putting our, our time exploring. So certainly, yeah, like a, a winner or a finalist, especially in the, mo- the more legitimate competitions, it's going to, you know, push that person up higher in my pile. But still, at the end of the day, like somebody who I trust referring that mm. person to me is going to go a lot longer. Um, like one of the things I, I was actually at the Austin film festival a few months ago and I was talking about this cause it, it's a very frequent question because it's really, frankly, it's really maddening. I think for a lot of writers to be like, how do I break in? It's this chicken or an egg scenario. Like you need to sell something before you can get reps, but you need to have reps where you can sell something. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would say, like you mentioned, you know, the, those young hustler producers who might be attached to their projects well, usually that young writer is doing a lot of that work on spec really for the producer. So I think, you know, as long as you have a good relationship with them, there should be that ability for that producer to advocate on your behalf to help you get a representative, mm-hmm. a manager or an agent, especially if they have those relationships. And that is an open door. Um, you know, I also really encourage writers, especially ones that are trying to break into not only just focus on trying to punch through and just find a rep directly or even a producer, but you know, get to know your community of other screenwriters because all ships really do rise together. You know, like I mentioned, I have several clients who I signed because they came from other clients who just knew them for years and they were in writers groups or collaborated on stuff in the past. And, you know, those people trust each other and, you know, talk about the reps that are good and, and vice versa. Like I trust their taste and, and writers. So I think a lot of times that's a really underutilized way that writers can really help each other. It's not a zero sum game. It's not like, Oh, you know, you got signed and now I'm not going to. In fact, I think it's really the opposite. You want to build these communities of like-minded people who you trust. And I mean, again, weirdly enough, like I have so many clients who have, you know, worked on this show on staff and a couple of years later, they're the ones running their own show, hiring that showrunner as their number two on staff and mm. form these lifelong relationships, not only from finding representation, but for finding work eventually too, which is, part of what's really so great about the business. If you 
are good and kind to each other and, and uh, you know, keep what I always call good industry karma uh, going around. Mm-hmm. No, that's good advice. Absolutely. Um, here's a, a question uh, from Amon Hale or Haley. Uh, it says, hi, Ryan, how do you break down the story when analyzing a screenplay? Um, well, I mean, in terms of breaking down, like when I'm giving notes to my clients mm-hmm. or on projects, I usually think of it, um, this is where I'm like doing creative development to try to make it as strong as possible, right. not just evaluating of like passing on something or, or saying yes or no to something. I mean, the simpler version, if I'm going to you know, engage and say to a potential client, hey, I want to meet or I want to read more material, it goes back to the breakdown of like, is there a unique voice there? I don't even really care if the script I read is something that's sellable. In fact, I'd rather read something that is really unique and exciting, even though it's completely uncommercial, because it'll say, no, there's more there to work with mm-hmm. versus maybe a completely commercial concept, but kind of a you know mediocre voice that's not nearly as exciting. Because for me as a manager, it's not about transacting on a single project. It's about finding people who I can work with for, for decades, like I have with a lot of my clients, actually, um, for that long haul and to work and grow with them. Um, separately, if I'm reading a script because it's a project I'm developing or I'm helping a client develop, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I always think about it as a pyramid. Like to me, there's, you know, the, the kind of base layer, the thing that's most important at the foundation that really you can't change is is ultimately the thematics of the movie. And I think, you know, I use the word thematic. I think people use interchangeable terms, but it's it's what the story is about. It's what you want to say with the story. It's what you're trying to impart to the audience about the world or about these characters. I mean, that point of view, the thing you're trying to say, and I think as a writer, whether you start writing a script knowing you want to say X, Y, and Z, or a lot of writers think write something based on instincts and they kind of figure out what they want to say through that process, that's the most immutable part of that. Everything else is in service of like what you're trying to say with this story, mm-hmm. which could be myriad things, but you got to figure that out. And then, you know, the next level above that in the pyramid is ultimately the character and the character journeys, because those to me are a vehicle for what you're trying to say. Not only the hero, but the antagonist is probably the opposite of that and various other characters as functions of that. And then above that, a lot of the other things, I think the higher you get in the pyramid, the more um, changeable it gets. Because again, like, you know, what you want to say with the movie, well, there's probably different iterations of what the character journey is to go and facilitate that. Above that, there's your plot and your structure, which again, are more fungible uh, to service the things below it. And then above that, you get into all the other ancillary parts. So that's kind of how I think of it through kind of a continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not, you know, it's honestly different in every scenario, every script, every story. I try not to ever be too rigid with those things because there's screenplays that have helped sell over the years that completely break every rule of storytelling and structure, but they really work because of other reasons, which I would usually argue is because they know what they want to say inherently and the characters work. Um, or maybe, you know, for a certain type of movie that you're trying to sell, you have to be very rigid to structural conventions and hitting the marks that, you know, certain buyers are going to want. And, and that's a lot of my job is to really advise my clients about, you know, what's, you know, if it's a Venn diagram, there's two circles, like what's that sliver in between of commercial and sellable, but also the most creatively satisfying thing that imparts what you want to say. Um, and that's my job is to help get people inside that part mm-hmm. of the diagram. Right, right. Uh, oh, just quickly, before I forget, uh, you'd mentioned the Austin Film Festival. John Zauzerny says hello. He, I, I talked to him yesterday, okay. and I told him I was talking to you, and he's, <laughs> he's got, he said you guys became uh, friendly during the uh, Austin Film Festival and wanted to say hi. Yep. Um, he's an old friend. He's a great guy. Uh, let's see here. Brooks Reynolds uh, says, Anonymous tends to produce a lot of elevated work that I would struggle to imagine a hooky, market-friendly logline for. With that in mind, what do you look for in one to request the script? Um, well, I mean, that's also, you know, Anonymous is a very big company. Mm-hmm. I mean, my old company, we had like eight employees. Anonymous has about 200 and it crosses over from commercials and music videos. We have a, a, a feature film and TV studio. We have a lot of producers and then we have, you know, the management divisions among some others as well. So, you know, people associate a lot of Anonymous with the things we produced. And a lot of that came from Steve Golan, who passed away a couple of years ago, but I founded the company and a lot of the you know managers and producers and others who I think were very like-minded in that. So, you know, as some of the credits you mentioned, like Eternal Sunshine and The Revenant and Spotlight and Mr. Robot and True Detective, mm-hmm. they've all got that kind of dark flair to what they do, but it's not monolithic really at all. I mean, one of the things that Anonymous also produced, but most people don't know, is uh, Schitt's Creek, which does not seem at all I didn't like know, yeah. True Detective. 
Yeah. So there's that. And that's, but again, that's the kind of producing and studio side of it. You know, for us as managers, I would say, look, certainly, you know, the client list and, and my client list even skews a bit more toward that like darker, maybe more prestige kind of uh, angle on things. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really, again, especially on the management side and especially with, with writers and directors, it's really much more about um, talented people that we can bring up. Um, you know, I work with, you know, some comedy clients. I work with, you know, clients that do some very big, very commercial studio movies like Ninja Turtles and, you know, other things like that. Um, and then I work with some who do just really indie movies and then some who fall somewhere in between too. So it's less about like, you know, trying to, at least for me, it's less about trying to fit the exact brand of the company. Um, but look, certainly I would say just as advice for anybody looking at representation, you do, you should be cognizant of what the company you're signing with and the particular representative you're signing with is known for. Um, and I think it can work both ways. Like maybe you're a comedy writer and you want to go to three arts because they have mm. an amazing comedy group and produce a lot of that. But look, if that's a place where you're an up and comer and it's just, you know, really inundated with other, you know, great comic writers, like you may be fairly, it may be tougher to get attention there. Um, unless you find the right manager who has a very specific plan and you know that, you know, you're not going to be too far down in the pecking order. Um, but at the same time, like just being somewhere like that as a comic writer, a comedy writer can actually just kind of elevate by nature of having, you know, that, you know, those letters on your uh, letterhead of your resume. And the same goes with agencies, of course, too, and, and everywhere else. So, um, I mean, again, for us, like, I'm just looking for like great, unique, interesting material, kind of genre agnostic, even though I work a lot with genre uh, writers and directors, I would say. And the same goes for my colleagues, too. There's actually quite a diversity in the management side of of uh, what we do and who we represent. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Vinny Manfred says, Hi, Ryan. Thanks for chatting with us. When working together, what are some things that a writer can do to make the process smoother on your end? Um, there's a few things. I mean, you know, communication is always key. It's, you know, a representation relationship is it's a marriage in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's also something people get a little bit confused about as they're kind of getting into the industry, which is, you know, how much do I talk to my manager or my agent? Am I bugging them too much? Am I not communicating enough? You know, it's interesting because you see like the way people interface with like their CPA or the real estate agent, it's not the same as how you do with your entertainment representatives, especially a manager, because I'm very day to day, week to week in my clients' lives, even when they're off shooting a movie or running a TV show, like I'm, you know, in pretty constant communication, even if it's just a quick email or text that, you know, during the week to check in and see how they're doing when I know they're crazy busy on set. Um, so, you know, how much, how that relationship works and how much you communicate, it's, it's going to be unique to you and your manager or your agent who you sign with. At least for me, though, I really like having a constant flow of communication and that's really helpful. My clients are communicative. Um, I, I jokingly say that because my days, like everybody's are really busy. If I get an email that's more than a paragraph long, I tend to like forward it to my reading file and read it that night. Cause it just might be a little too much to absorb while like texts are coming in and the phone is ringing and mm-hmm. I'm jumping onto a zoom and all the other stuff. So being really concise with what you need, I, I think is really helpful too. And honestly, it's great practice as a screenwriter because to me, screenwriting is poetry, not prose. So the more economical you are with your words and your communication abilities, the better, um, you know, I think clients um, a lot of times tend to sign with somebody and assume, okay, great, I'm done. I can just write and that's all I got to do. And they're going to get all the work and they're going to make all the connections and I don't have to do anything. And I don't think it's just that. I mean, there's really a fine balance between still, you know, networking, getting to know people, you know, cultivating relationships um, and, and even just keeping your eyes open for like what's going on I and mean, watching movies that are out there, TV shows you know, reading the trades, but not getting obsessed with everything that pops up as a deadline announcement because half the bullshit anyway, like really still being entrepreneurial because that helps, I think, both give your representatives more to work with so that they're seeing what you're excited about and where they can follow that thread and do it in a bigger way. Um, and just, you know, knowing when you need more of this or more of that. Um, and then, look, maybe the third thing I guess I would say, especially for, for writers, which I think are most people probably watching right now, um, it, I would say with a manager, every manager is different. So you got to kind of talk to your particular one and find out what they like. For me, like I said earlier, I really love being like that personal development executive for my clients. So I'm very 
tightly tied in with them right from the idea stage before they ever put a single word down in an outline or in a script because I want to know that what they're going to spend a lot of time on has a very good chance of, of selling and getting going. I don't like people working on stuff that feels just like it's a taking a complete flyer on something that has no chance or at the very least I want to tell them that's my opinion before they embark on it so they're not working on a script for six months thinking it's going to sell like hotcakes when maybe there's one buyer for it. But, um, you know, being diligent of when you deliver stuff to representatives, don't just like send them off the slapdash, you know, four page document outline that has a bunch of typos and isn't fully thought out and all that. Because there's that line of like, you want your manager to be in there in a deep tissue way, helping you work on ideas. But I think also being respectful of like, you really putting the thought in so that um, it feels uh, as far along as possible. It gives us more to work with. And I think it makes the whole process more productive. It makes me wonder about what the business was like before email when people had to type a script and a typewriter, go to the print shop and copy it and then drive it to their agent's office right. and hand it off in person, which is, you know, I think it's much more of a production to do that. But I think it probably made people um, probably look harder at that stuff before they handed it over too. whereas mm -hmm. now electronically, it's it's so easy to shoot stuff off. And I, I'm guilty of it, too, sometimes. I mean, I think we have a tendency to maybe pull a trigger too soon on stuff. And I think taking that extra time can actually save you a lot of time in the long run too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a good point. Uh, but there's something you had mentioned that I had never heard it phrased this way. And I think it's fan And I don't know why it sounds like it should be mm -hmm. everywhere. The screenwriting is poetry, not prose. Again, I've never heard yeah. that before, but it sounds like I should have, it sounds like it should be everywhere. And having worked at CIA on a desk and having worked as a story analyst, you know, at a production company at Warner's, I've read a ton of scripts, and that's one of the actually the the biggest problems you'll see with uh, emerging writers, newer writers, that they overwrite, that their description of what the carpet looks like and and the scratchings on the walls, even though they have nothing to do with the story, they don't move anything forward. It's very dense. And so that's something that absolutely writers should take into account. It's, it is poetry, not prose. Where did you hear that from? I mean, just out of, or did you make that up? That's genius. I, I, I might've made it up. I'm sure I stole it from somebody at some point later. Yeah. So whoever might've said it before me, apologies, and I'll send you the royalty for it. <laughs> but no, it, it actually, I mean, it, it came out just from, you know, I mean, I used to keep a log of scripts when I was at Madhouse of all the right. stuff I read. I stopped doing it for about five years and I think I'd hit like, I don't know, some ungodly number. It was in the tens of thousands of scripts I'd read and stuff. And, you know, like, just like yourself, after a long time, you start to notice the commonalities and what works. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say there aren't some writers who actually write in a very dense manner, but it's amazing and they make it work. But especially when you're breaking in, it's not the norm. And it's also this idea that I think the advice I give my clients, you have to make the, the job of the person on the other end of your screenplay, your pitch is easy as possible to say yes to mm -hmm. you. And especially as a young writer trying to break in, you know, there's a, well, if, if we actually printed stuff out, I said there's a stack of scripts this high, of, you know, 25 things on an executive's weekend read. And the more they can be reading, you know, you always hear say reading, you know, vertically rather than horizontally and really just flipping the pages psychologically for the reader, it creates something much more exciting because they're moving through it and it's, it's, it's progressing. And, and if you can also communicate, you know, as much information in an economy of words that you would in something that looks more like a book on the page, mm -hmm it's going to be that much more satisfying. And I think a lot of times it's that much more descriptive. It really forces you as a writer to look at every word and phrase. And, and even within the scene, just like you do every movement, every character decision, when you get into the scene, when you get out of the scene and be up as, as tight with it as possible. And I think it shows somebody just that you're, you're really giving deep thought to this stuff and the true meaning of everything they read. Mm -hmm. But I think the more meaning is loaded into that, the more you want to not clutter it up with, a bunch of you know randomness around it even if you really are seeing that in your head as the writer uh, it, it's incumbent upon you to find a way to communicate that in a in the most digestible way right. and then that format's going to change i mean eventually you know you sell a script to the studio and hopefully it's getting made and usually it balloons up after that between the notes and also just the kind of production pass and stuff you flesh out but keeping in mind that whether it's a spec script you're taking the market or the spec script you're using to take the market to representatives to try to land somebody it, it, it's almost like a totally different script you're reading in that context because right. you want it to be this super fast efficient read versus the production draft and i think that's where confusion can lie sometimes with younger writers yeah no absolutely uh, what's the old saying never use two words when one will do 
Um, yeah, yeah. Or there's that great Mark Twain quote, or maybe it was Hemingway that said, "Like I, I, I meant to write you a shorter letter, but I ran out of time." Apologies. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, let's hear George Allen or George Aiken. Sorry, George Aiken says, "Have you ever passed on a script and regretted it? Better yet, have you passed on a client and regretted it?" Oh, tons, all the time. Yeah. No, it, it, look, it, that's, there's certainly people over the years that either I've, I've read a script and I didn't move fast enough, mm. or I would say, I don't know if there's anybody that I've just like passed on outright and said, oh, this is dog shit. And then it was some huge, you know, TV show. But, you know, the nature of the beast, especially as a manager, because, you know, we have smaller lists. And I think just the work we do with clients is a lot more um, deep tissue. I, I can't sign everybody. So frequently I'm having to pass on people or scripts just saying like, I just don't know if I like this really love this enough in a way that I want to run around town yelling from the treetops about it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe again, I have, you know, other clients on my list that are kind of similar and it wouldn't be fair to them to sign this person or this script. Um, it's just, it's the nature of the beast I mean, in the same way where, you know, as much as I like to give my executive friendship when they passed on a script and then it was, you know, a big spec sale or a big movie that came out, you know, there's certainly a subjective element. There's also just, you know, we only have so many hours in the day mm-hmm. um, or even people I've met with before who I, I, you know, read their stuff, liked it enough, met with them. And I didn't quite feel like the, the personality fit was quite the right match. And knowing how, you know, what the commitment is to that relationship when you get into it, I'd want to make sure that I'm not dreading when they call or where I'm excited to talk to them. Right. So but there's, you know, there's so many talented writers and, and projects out there no one person can gobble all of them up. And I've certainly, you know, passed them stuff in the past. That's, you know, done well. So if anybody's here who I've passed on, uh, I'm only one person. So don't take it too personally or as the word of God here. Right. Uh, Sean Winslow says, when sending a query letter, should a writer send the pilot log line or series log line? Um, I would, well, it's kind of doing both. I mean, if you're communicating efficiently for a TV show, it should be clear what the show is and probably have a sense of the flavor of what the pilot is, even within the log line, because the pilot does launch the show. Like if I pitched you the, I don't know what the log line actually was for True Detective, but I could pitch you a log line on it that pretty clearly communicates like, you know, told in two time periods, you know, two detectives who, you know, pursued a, a serial killer in the past and thought they'd stopped him, find out in the present that, the killings are happening again and they need to reunite to stop whatever is now happening present mm-hmm. day and to figure it out they have to you know rectify the past to figure out the present like you have a very good sense of the whole show right there as well as the pilot story so i think you can do both but again i would say like with your screenplays keep the query letters really efficient have a subject line that maybe even puts your your bona fides in there like whatever blue cat finalist or you know something that you know, UCLA, you know, trained screenwriters. So people know there's legitimacy there. Mm-hmm. Get to the story really quick so they know what it is and get out really quickly too. If I get a query email, if I could accept them and there's like two paragraphs before I get to it, it's going to get deleted before I ever see uh, what the hell they're pouring me about. Right, right. And in terms of uh, the, the log line, um, your pilot log line, your pilot script, uh, most of the time it has you know, it teases what the whole series is about anyway. If it doesn't, it's very unusual that it doesn't. Um, yeah. You know, if you're not, if you don't know where the show is going after the first episode, it's either really sort of uh, unique and, and unusual or it's just poorly written and you didn't get to the point. <laughs> Completely agree. Yeah. yeah. And if part of the question was if you should actually include the attachments too, mm. never do that until no. somebody formally requests it. Yeah. Yeah, because most companies that can't accept them, they're going to need you to sign um, a release form anyway. And and if I get an email with an attachment from somebody I don't know, I assume it's a virus and I believe immediately anyway. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Yeah, do not send attachments. Do not send your script. Don't think that they'll read your logline and just read your script. They will request it or delete it without even looking at your letter because, yeah, I've heard that on a lot of occasions. And so writers, if you're attaching your script and you're not getting any responses, they're probably not even looking at your query. They're probably just deleting it. Um. Let's see here. Uh, Amon Haley said, I tend to see those overly written passages in the beginning of the screenplay. I hope those purple prose lines aren't being mistaken as voice. Yeah, no, I don't think that they are. Um, I wanted to, to ask you about voice. That, now, that voice is one of those amorphous qualities that it's, it's difficult to sort of uh, quantify. But to you, what, what stands out in voice? Like what pops in a script that 
anything in particular that, uh, you know, obviously it changes. Like everyone has a different voice, which is what makes the, the, this question so difficult to answer. But is there anything yeah. you've seen recently or your any of your clients that have something specific, like, you know, for, you know, like William Goldman, you can tell a William Goldman script or a Quentin Tarantino script. Once you just read a couple pages, you know that that's who that is or someone imitating them very accurately. What, yeah. what stands out to you in, in voice? Like if you had to sort of quantify um, it for someone. Yeah. Just like you said, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it. So mm-hmm. it is tricky to quantify because I think everybody's voice and how they're communicating that can be different. Um, I mean, and I love to brought up like William Goldman and some other writers who do have those voices just on the page. You can read it and understand it's them mm-hmm. because, you know, usually it's very hard to do that. Like the example I tend to use is more of a director based one, which is you, know, you can watch Benjamin Button or Gone Girl or, uh, you know, whatever else. Like, you know, those are David Fincher movies, even right. if you don't see his name in the movie, because there's something there, there are these like characteristics to the way he directs mm-hmm. and the stories he tells that feel very Fincher-esque. And I think as a writer, usually where I find it is, is in a couple places. I mean, certainly the dialogue, I think, is a big one. You know, certain writers just have more of an ear for it. I and mean, you can develop that, of course, too. But I think maybe the way they, they write their dialogue mm-hmm. um, can be pretty unique. Um, the, the other place, of course, is in the scene descriptions. I mean, going back to, you know, the, the writer of Prisoners, like one of the first screenplays of his that I read, had this line toward the beginning that was, it was a horror script, but it was something the effect of like, you know, telephone poles that were mummified by lost dog flyers. And huh. it's just like so evocative, yeah. but, but you immediately get dropped into like, okay, that doesn't sound good. That sounds really creepy. Right. And, but, and you automatically know there's something weird going on where all these lost dogs are in this neighborhood, but you also, but it's a very quick way of kind of just establishing like a tone mm-hmm. that you're going into. Um, and then, you know, I think of others like, again, just because we talked about him earlier, like, you know, back in woods have a, a really unique, you know, I think voice to the way they write. But what's interesting is that for them, it, it's like, the, the, like with A Quiet Place and some of their other screenplays, they'll take a lot of big swings with the way they write things. Like in A Quiet Place, their original spec, they'd be like one word on a page sometimes to go and wow. communicate the pacing of something. Yeah. Or they put like visuals inside the script too. So that was a really good way to communicate that there was something very different here and to make people feel like they were living through the movie when they read the, the spec. But also with them, I mean, they have a pretty consistent voice, both in terms of what they like to explore, like, thematically and on a character level. Like, there's always really strong resonant themes about, like, family and connection and, um, you know, conflict and how you get through that. Whether it's a horror movie or a sci-fi movie or, or any other things they've done, too. So in that respect, there's a consistency in the voice in so much as their point of view on the world really comes through. Like, they have this very, like, almost in some cases like classic Amblin-esque or like a Midwestern kind of flavor, I think to the way they see the world in a really good way. And then they um, take that and they put it into these different scenarios, like with their super secret movie they're in post on with Adam Driver, which is very different than that, but it still has this resonance that you can tell it's them inside of there. Mm-hmm. So, and look in the other place you can do it is even structurally. Although I think structure is a tough thing because it's inevitably going to change in most from script to script that you do. So I think it's hard to, you don't necessarily want to make like your voice per se be known because you're like taking these crazy swings with structure, because then I think it forces you into a, a corner where kind of like M. Night Shyamalan, where suddenly you're expecting it's always going to have a wacky structure, like night has a big twist or, you know, some people always go back to the kind of heyday of spec script sales with Shane Black, like mm. talking directly to the audience from the page. And right. there was a great voice there and there was, it was really unique at the time from what people tell me. And that's what was exciting but then a lot of people copied that and it was just kind of like not that unique. So anyway, that's a super long winded way of saying a, that I'm not economical as I advise my writers to do with my language, but B you really have to find your voice or what the aspect is that you can apply to yourself. And again, just think about it, how like each of us literally sees the world in a different way, the way that we take in information, our brain processes it, like try to really drop people into how you see the world because that's very different than if I'm writing that exact same story as right. maybe you would be. Right. Absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Ruthie Moran says, what kinds of things can emerging writers expect once they sign with a manager? What are those initial conversations like? Um, again, I would say it varies manager to manager because whereas agents, it's very similar 
you know, job designations, whether you're at CA or cap installer, mm-hmm. um, you know, managers come from such a huge range of backgrounds. There's former development executives who become managers, people that come up through the system like myself, there's agents who leave that side and become managers. And each one is going to have, I think, a different style of how they manage. Some managers literally say like, no, I don't develop. I don't give notes. I'm just mm-hmm. here to, you know, kind of help you know move your career along and, and all that. And that's, that's fine. Um, but again, fine. Make sure you're signing with somebody who you feel is a fit for what you need. Um, but at least for me, like I sign a client, usually I've read a lot of stuff from them before I've signed them. We get together in person on Zoom, on the phone, whatever is going on, depending on the state of pandemics. Um, and we go through everything. I want them to download me on every script they have, every log line, every idea, and really just do a thorough accounting of like, okay, what's essentially in their whole development slate? And then we go through and put stuff in priority order. And it's based on what their goals and needs are. If I'm signing somebody who, you know, it's like, look, I really, you know, I quit my day job. I need to, you know, make money in this within the next six to nine months. That's a different path than somebody who's independently wealthy and wants to make their passion project, which is different than somebody who's already in the system and can probably land work a lot easier, but I'm being brought on to help them develop their own original material. Um, so based on all that, again, the Venn diagram of, you know, commercial and money versus creative, it's going to tell us, okay, what things should you be working on? Uh, right now and what stages are they in and then I divide them out into what those different kind of buckets or sectors are because pretty much all my clients work at least in both tv and and film Mm -hmm. Um, several work in the book world digital some are doing podcasts and other stuff too Um, you know the idea being that I'd like my clients all working on multiple things as much as they can handle while still delivering at a high level but I also don't want them writing four different features at the same time because if those things all finish up at the same time, I don't want to step on their own toes in the marketplace, but we could be taking out a spec for cable and streaming the same time they're pitching a TV show for broadcast the same time that we're developing a feature spec and that they're also doing a rewrite assignment at Warner brothers. And maybe they're developing a podcast with a different company and nobody in any of those sectors is really aware of anything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. So every producer party they're working with feels like they're getting the full attention um, and we're also planting flags in many different arenas that, again, like the podcast launches and it does really well, then suddenly you're getting more offers to do podcasts or any of those other things. And you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket because I have you know, seen before writers who are like, oh, they're the feature studio action thriller person. And then those movies fall out of favor and they're just shit out of luck. Mm-hmm. And we're starting at square one. And I never want my clients going through that. Right. Now, you would mention that you like the diversity of material in terms of mm-hmm. uh, uh, features, in terms of television, books, whatever they can, graphic novels and uh, other sources, whatever they can get into. Um, how does that, we all know that if you want to work in television, you sort of have to be in Los Angeles. I mean, it's very, very difficult mm-hmm. to break in otherwise. Maybe in New York, but I mean, if you're a writer, most rooms are in Los Angeles. Um how does that work for those writers out there who may not be in Los Angeles trying, you know, developing multiple things? Like, let's say you love a, a writer's feature script, but they're not here and they're, they're not able to come here in the immediate future. How do you work with a writer like that? Yeah, so, I mean, I do represent, you know, some international clients mm-hmm. and some clients that don't, you know, live in L.A. Or Certainly like the pandemic has... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing, a lot of people, even before the pandemic, I had some clients who weren't living in L.A. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we we used to joke that, look, I mean, you can live outside of L.A., especially once you're in the system and established. You just have to be willing to pay the tax of like flying in at a moment's notice sometimes for stuff that's in person. Mm -hmm. I think in a really great way, Zoom and all this has really, you know, opened things up. So it's, it's far less necessary to be here. Um, but you know, the same way that, you know, we were talking about, you know, certain, if you're a finalist in the nickels, there's a different legitimacy to that. Even the location you're coming from can be that LA certainly shows that you're here, you're ready to go into a meeting or jump into a writer's room with the drop of a hat. You're also just going to inherently meet more people that are connected to the business. Even Mm -hmm. if it's your Uber driver who happens to have a buddy whose roommate is a junior agent at CAA, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get that same thing living in, you know, Hartford, Connecticut, where I come from, um, you know, similarly, New York, you're going to get some connections, not as much because a lot of the film industry, I think, is kind of vacated from there. But there's that legitimacy of like, oh, well, maybe they're like a playwright or they have something else, too. And there's you know, various places that are like that. Um, 
if you want to work specifically in TV and be staffed on a show, which certainly is a, is a big goal for a lot of writers, inevitably I would say, yeah, prepare to live in Los Angeles. Um, whether you're relocating or you're, lo- you're or you're relocating here prior to that, getting ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I mean, there are lots of writers who don't necessarily want to staff, but they do want to sell TV and you can mm-hmm. write scripts, you can sell pitches, you can do that. You know, as the pandemic lifts, I would say plan on flying into LA more for those pitch meetings, but Zoom is certainly an option still. Um, and the feature side, I think, is pretty wide open. I think until, again, you need to come in to meet with the head of the studio in person for the movie or this or that, you can be anywhere. Nobody really knows who you are, where you're living. Um, you mentioned back in the woods, nobody knew that Scott was living in Iowa for a while before mm-hmm. um, the pandemic hit. And now it just seems totally normal, but he would you know, fly in when he needed to. Um, and I have others that do that, too. So the, the talent will trump the location. But if you want to give yourself, especially when breaking in, the most access to opportunities as possible, certainly going to L.A. is a is helpful in that part. Right. No, that's that's great. Um, now, we're nearing uh, noon, which you had mentioned you might have to to drop pretty soon. Um, so I wanted to, to see what your schedule is like. I'm good until about twelve fifteen, actually. Okay, so, so we got a couple, couple more questions then, um, yeah. which is great. So for those writers out there who um, are looking for a rep, obviously you're at a position where you're a big company, you've got a huge client list. But let's say a few years back at Madhouse, when you're a newer rep, where were some of the most diverse places you've you've discovered talent, i.e. not necessarily a referral from someone, but was it through cold mm-hmm. queries? Was it through contests? Was it through going to Austin and running into someone? Was it, you know, um, your, you know, uh, mom's hairdresser who handed you a script? Yeah. Where, where were some of the more interesting places you've discovered clients or was it all pretty straightforward through referrals? Um, yeah, no, it, well, um, definitely a lot of the more straightforward ones ended up being more fruitful, but mm. I would, you know, again, I was taking, you know, screenplays from my dad's former boss's son's college roommate and reading that and had coffee with him to give him some advice. Right. Um, you know, screenplay competitions, you know, a lot of the usual places you mentioned, you know, the blacklist before, right. you know, both the list that Franklin puts out every year. That's a great place. All the most people there are, are reps already, or even the blacklist site. Cause there is, you know, the scores and stuff they put up. And I think, you know, even just somebody, you know, because you have to pay money to put it up shows they're, you know, committed enough that they want to go and do that. Um, but um, no, it's again, like the thing that I think a lot of whenever I hear writers trying to break in, get frustrated and say, oh, there's no way to break in. And it's like, it's hard. It definitely is. But, you know, the, the phrase I always love to use is that, you know, great scripts grow legs. And there's so many stories, whether it's you know, Kyle Killen when he wrote The Beaver, or Diablo Cody with Juno or others, like a great script suddenly, you know, not only the, the representative or the producers, but, you know, the assistant who got the query that happened to read it. It's like, this is amazing, wants to use that as, um, uh, you know, to transact, to get themselves promoted, the show that they have good taste and they know this, you know, they can find these great writers and, it can come from anywhere. So I think the thing is, if you write something truly amazing, and I say always, you know, share it with your friends, try to you know, get as much feedback as possible. If it's really that great, it's going to find its way. Um, but you also have to be ready to put it out there and to not be scared of sharing it too much. And that's, again, that fine line of when is it actually ready to be shared with people? Mm-hmm. And when it's ready, you just have to be bold enough to give it to everybody. Your, your mom gives it to her hairdresser all the way to the AFI professor, all the way to the blacklist and you know whatever else you have at your disposal because one of those ways if it's truly great is going to punch through mm-hmm. but if you only go for one of those ways that's when it might not actually punch through even if it is amazing mm-hmm. now uh how does a young screenwriter in iowa say who has a screenplay that they're not sure is ready to go out yet so without burning all the bridges sending it out to everyone and you know anyone who will look at it what is a good way for some of these uh, emerging writers to, without a, a strong network of working professionals, without you know a film mm-hmm. school class or without uh, you know a group of assistants at CIA that they worked at, uh, w- without that, what would you suggest that that they look into to try to figure out if this is actually as good as I think it is as a writer versus yeah I probably need some more work. 
Yeah. Well, that's where I think any almost any major city out there is probably going to have a group of like-minded people. Like I used to go to Chicago um, to you know speak with the Chicago Screenwriters Network mm-hmm. a while ago, and I think other cities have similar things. Um, you know, again, just finding a group, forming a writers group of other people who are screenwriters or or any kind of writers for that matter. I mean, we playwrights could be whatever. I mean, I think creatives helping each other by challenging each other in a productive manner is really beneficial and it goes back to you just never know what can pop out of that i think there's a lot of ways to network without making it your entire life Mm -hmm. so like i love going to austin every year for the film festival because you know it's almost more of a writer's conference than it even is a film festival in a lot of respects because it is so writer focused and i think it's a great way to again not only get access to the the executives who are there but to other writers you can get to know and stay in contact with um, you know, again, going back to like the blacklist and other competitions, I think that's certainly a viable route to open up opportunities. Um, I would just say just with the, with the contest, try to you know, do your homework on which ones really do have a good conversion rate for exposing the winners or the semifinalists to the industry, because there's you know a lot of them out there, I think, collect fees more than they mm-hmm. really provide a service. Not all of them are built equally. Um, and then there's a lot of services. I don't know how many of them still exist, but I know, you know, the blacklist had the option where you could be getting feedback from some of their readers. And I think that's, you know, largely beneficial. I think Script Shark still is around like that. And I think there's some others too, where there are paid services. I wouldn't invest your like life savings in doing it, but I think it is one of many tools in your kit that you should use. And then beyond that, I don't even you know, know all the other ones. I mean, it wouldn't shock me if there are just Googling like screenwriters mm-hmm. groups that you can join online and get to know people that way. Um, which, you know, can open up opportunities that I'm not even thinking of myself that are probably out there. So I think getting out into the world, it's like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, it, it's similar with writing a screenplay. And, you know, screenwriting and TV is different than writing a novel. Like, mm-hmm. you could write a book and self-publish it on Amazon, even if nobody ever reads it, at least that's your baby birth and it's mm-hmm. done. A, a screenplay is never done until the movie's made or the show is made. Mm-hmm. So you have to become okay with the idea of putting your work out to other people because the whole business is a collaborative medium of people shitting on your work and telling you to make it better and doing all the other stuff they do. So I think getting used to that early on, um, getting brave about it is, uh, is, is half the battle for, for getting signed in the first place. Right. And for those writers out there who uh, are looking or meeting with reps or at that stage where they're meeting with reps, um, I guess the question is twofold. One, what should writers be asking in those interviews, because it really should be a, a two-way street. Like you're interviewing the manager as much as yeah. they're interviewing you uh, to see if it's a good fit. So, what do you think, uh, from your perspective, should writers, uh, filmmakers, be asking? Uh, what kind of questions should they be asking uh, of the, the potential rep? And as a manager, as a lit rep, what are sort of some some red flags you see when you do meet with some of these writers and filmmakers that you're like, mm, I don't know if that's that. I, I didn't like hearing that. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's a great question and also a great point you brought up that I'm glad you did because, mm-hmm. you know, every relationship, there's sort of a power dynamic at work and certainly a younger screenwriter feels like, oh my God, I want to sign with this rep and make them happy. But it's actually the reverse of what the dynamic is. I mean, technically, like I, I'm an employee of every single one of my clients. Mm-hmm. I work for them and every client I have is almost quite literally a different job that I have. And you know, Again, going back to your question earlier, have I passed on people before? And some have passed on people because of bandwidth, because I can't, mm. I can only have so many jobs before. There's not enough hours in the day. And I like, you know, seeing my wife and kids occasionally too. So <laughs> there's that. And I think, you know, but, but approaching it, you know, in a humble way, but knowing that you as a screenwriter are hiring somebody, you're going to be paying the money out of what you make. And you're the one doing most of the work. It's why you get, you know, 90% and your rep gets 10%, mm-hmm. because there is that. So I think making sure that you feel comfortable with the dynamic and that there is a good kind of push and pull and a give and take, I think also being very honest about what your goals and objectives are and what you want to be writing and doing next, because yeah, you might have this idea of, Oh, I want to sign with whomever at whatever 360 because it's a great company. And all you want to do is impress them and tell them what they want to hear. So they will sign you thinking, Oh, that's going to make my dreams come true. But if they sign you and then, and then it turns out, oh, wait, you want to write broad comedies, but they sign you off of your horror and thriller writing, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a productive relationship. So in that respect, it's 
it's it's really like probably like your mom's dating advice. It's like you got to be yourself. You got to be really honest about what you need, and you got to find the right fit based on that. Because like you said, it is that two way street. Um, certainly, as everybody knows, I think there's red flags of like if somebody wants a an upfront money retainer to represent you, don't do it because that's not at all how the industry works, mm-hmm. and that's a scam essentially. Um, you know, they should be commissioning at you know ten percent. That's the standard rate. I think way back in the day before managers were much of a thing, I think people did 15 or maybe that's like a music thing, but you know, 10% should be pretty standard. Um, I would say, you know, certainly get a clear point of view on what they're bringing as a manager in terms of value. Cause like I said, I love to develop. That's part of where I think I have value is being able to stress test my clients ideas and give them creative guidance within the business model of things. The managers who say, Hey, I don't really give notes. I just, help shop my client stuff and I help them get an agent and do all this stuff. That's actually great for some writers. I mean, I've passed on people because they literally said like, yeah, I don't really like getting notes from my representatives. I'm like, okay, well, well that's fine. I just don't feel like that's, you know, a, a good fit for me for what I want to do. Because for me, especially when I take stuff out into the world or when I represent somebody, not only am I a reflection of them as their representative, like you don't want to sign with a rep who you feel like is a shitty person because that's going to reflect badly on you. The same goes for me. I want to have clients who I feel like reflect well on me and I only want to advocate for material that I feel passionate about. And I feel like selfishly is a good reflection on me too, because that's Mm -hmm. my taste as well. So you got to be aligned with the taste, with what they're bringing to the table. Um, You know, talk to them about, you know, if they have, you know, stories of any other clients they feel are kind of similar to you or, or the stage in your career and how that went and what they were able to do to get them off the ground. Um, you know, get a sense of where they think, you know, you would fit as a client, you know, do they really think you have a chance of staffing if that's your priority or is it like, no, that's probably several years away because X, Y, and Z factors that they think are aligned against you. Okay. Well, maybe there's another manager out there who's just totally gung ho and feels like they know how to sell you in a different way than that other person did. And again, that's another reason I've, not sign people in the past because I just said, look, that other person says they can sell the screenplay for a million bucks and I think it's great writing, but I really don't know how to sell it. Go with them. You should see if they can do that for you. So really clear all that stuff out so that you're going into the relationship, knowing what it's going to be once it officially starts and what they're going to go and do. Um, and like you frequently hear writers talk about this with whether it's managers, agents, or even producers you go into these meetings and they're like, oh my God, this is the greatest script I've ever read. I'm so excited. We're going to you know, sell this for a million dollars and get the movie made. And then you sign with them. And they're like, so I've got like eight pages of notes and here's what I want to do. And <laughs> that might be totally legitimate. Fine. But you should know that before you sign with the mm-hmm. person and do not. And, and before you tell the other people you're not signing with them. Um, so I would say, don't be shy about asking the question and, you know, do it in a, again, a humble way. I mean, you can say, look, I just want to be really clear and you can be honest with me about this and just really, you know, put them on the spot and see what they say. And I think usually you'll be happily surprised by people are pretty honest when you give them the chance to be, and they're not just in sales mode, which a lot of us are in day to day. Right. No, that's great. Um, so here we have one last question here. Uh, Brooks Reynolds, do short films still matter for signing writers, directors? Uh, the word among commercial directors trying to break into narrative is no, but what, other steps other than a great spec would you suggest? Um, well, it's kind of dependent on the context. Mm-hmm. I think short films are an amazing place to sign new clients, especially directors, obviously, um, because you can you know, get your, your directing voice out on screen and that can really excite people. It's quick to watch. And as a representative, I can very quickly blast that to a bunch of people and they can watch it in five minutes and say, wow, he's amazing. She's amazing. I want to meet with them. Um, but if you're already a commercial music video director, you've probably done a lot of that stuff already. You've probably mm-hmm. a reel that shows your directing chops. And then the short film, in a lot of ways, is just showing, oh, they can direct actors or tell narrative. Um, so there's not as much of a leap for that person as there is for the writer who's never directed before who does a short film as a means of being considered as a director. Um, beyond that, I would say, and this applies to like, because I, I tend to traffic a bit more in the thriller, horror, sci-fi kind of space. Um, I find those kind of short films can frequently be great uh, proof of concepts. I was actually at, at a, uh, was catching up with a client a couple of weeks ago and we were discussing some of the you know things she wants to do to 
both create more material to sell her screenplays, but also you know, potentially, you know, be directing herself more later. And we talked a lot about, you know, if you have a great, whatever, let's say a contained horror screenplay, but you've never directed before and it's an under $5 million movie and you'd like to direct it. Well, a really great way to go and have a tool that separates your great screenplay from all the other screenplays out there. And you want to direct it is shoot a, proof of concept which ideally would also be its own standalone short film um i don't think he did this on purpose but i would say like david sandberg his short for lights out is effectively that you can very clearly see how that movie works mm-hmm. just from the short film and it really launched him um you know you can do that kind of a model and then you can still take that to festivals and even if you know the movie itself never gets made at least then you're making inroads as a director and probably winning awards for that and showing people that you can direct this. And that is a place that people still look for new directors. And in an ideal world, that same short film is seen by an executive or is seen by a rich, you know, dentist who wants to finance a movie at a film festival. And they say, this is amazing. What do you have next? And you can say, Oh, I've actually got the full feature of what this is. So it's not just a short film. It's a proof of concept too. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was talking to my client too about this, you know, we were talking about like for, you know, whiplash very famously, Amy and Chazelle shot one of the scenes. Although my understanding is that the movie was already set up with Blumhouse and they were considering financing it. And the reason he shot that was both to prove that he could direct this mm-hmm. and also make jazz drumming feel thrilling, which I mean, <laughs> if I read that screenplay, I would have had the same question too. Right. Um, but, but to me, that's, that's more the model of once you're already with somebody and you're just adding further material to justify your directing this movie, mm-hmm. not, selling it or selling you as a filmmaker um and like the advice of again doing a short like lights out and having the lights out feature right behind it if if david actually did although i don't think he did um that applies to representatives as well like there's there's actually you know several directors who have done short films who i just got an email from one this morning who i hadn't heard from in like six months and he's like hey you know you we had that coffee a while back and you give me advice on these ideas i actually ended up shooting this one here's some stills from it would love to send you to edit when it's done. I'm like, great, that's amazing. I'd love to see it. And then maybe at that point, you know, I feel like I've got the requisite tools to help him sell it. And, you know, then I can justify to me saying, oh, yeah, we should work together. Because I mm-hmm. actually feel like I can bring enough value into your life with that if, if you want to sign with me. Um, so I think, anyway, again, very long-winded answer. I apologize. But no. short films are a great path still. Mm-hmm. But make sure you're thinking about a couple steps down the road, not just making a short for the sake of making a short, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I know you have to go. Thank you so much for coming on the live stream today and answering all of our questions and, and uh, all of your was sharing your wisdom with everybody. Um, and, and as a Very reminder, great question. Thanks for having me. And as a reminder, our final show of the year, the big year-end extravaganza with a bunch of surprise guests will be on Wednesday, December 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all for joining us today. And again, thank you, Ryan. It was really fantastic. I appreciate your time today. And you taught me something. I don't always learn uh, that much because uh, we've done uh, hundreds of these. But poetry, screenwriting is poetry, not prose. I'm going to write that down. That's fantastic. So I, I definitely <laughs> learned something today. Um, well, I hope it's helpful. Thanks again for having me. This is really, really great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you all for watching. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks. Bye.